Baptist Church. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> well, if you have your copy of God's perfect and holy word, I want to invite you to open up to uh, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, we're going to be hitting today on verses 43 through 52. 43 through 52, Dave has already read it this morning, and so we, we uh, trust that God has uh, blessed the reading of his word. Uh, but would you pray with me for just a moment as we um, uh, ask God to uh, illumine his, uh, his word for us. Uh, Father, we thank you so much for uh, this word today, and we ask God that you would um, uh, use your word to uh, illumine our hearts, God, that we would see where we are falling short and where Christ is mighty and victorious. And would you take these words that have been prepared to uh, glorify your Son, Lord Jesus, and it's in his matchless name that I ask this. Amen. Well, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen uh, is uh, a popular statement that uh, conveys the idea that if you can't handle the pressures of the given situation, then you should probably uh, not be in that situation. Uh, for example, I've known a number of people who uh, went to college to be teachers. And if there's anything that, we can be, that can be said about teachers is that it not only requires a unique skill set, but it also involves a certain level of, of tenacity that goes with it. Teaching is tough, and it's really not for the, the faint of heart. Uh, there are pressures that are, are associated in the classroom and in the boardroom and in uh, meetings and in the lounge and in the public sphere that are so high that sometimes it just would, would make a lot of us kind of blow our lid a little bit. Um, so it's not uh, it's a surprise that when some folks went into university with this idyllic picture of what teaching is going to be and uh, that maybe one day they would uh, have the goal of being the, the teacher of the year, um, that uh, when they get into that specific situation that they say, you know, this really isn't, isn't for me. Um, I've had a number of people, actually, that I've talked to that have even used the phrase, you know, it turns out I really don't even like kids all that much uh, after their student teaching experience. So if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. You see, there's a huge difference between the theoretical and the real. You can study uh, educational uh, philosophy. You can learn about classroom management. You can learn about case studies of of uh, some really messed up situations that, that kids uh, come out of and how they affect educational performance. Uh, but until you actually step into the classroom, uh, you don't really truly know. Um, I did very well in my education classes. And um, when I took my certification test, which is called the Praxis II, I ended up getting a certificate in the mail that said I was in the top 2% of, of Praxis II takers in the, in the nation. Um, I student taught under one of the most well-respected choral directors in the state who's now in the MSHSL Hall of Fame. And I don't say that to brag because I quickly found out that none of that really mattered when I got into the classroom. When I was in a classroom, when it was just me and 50 uh, junior hires, no aides or anything, uh, there was one student in particular that did not want to give me two thumbs up. He gave me two other fingers up uh, within the first month that I was teaching. Uh, there, uh, there was a mom who would consistently wait outside my classroom at 7 a.m., and she didn't care 
uh, who I student taught under or what any of my test scores showed. She was more concerned with making sure that I knew how terrible of a teacher I was for uh, having her kid stay after school and miss uh, basketball practice or at least come late to uh, practice because of his behavior. All that theory and all that, uh, all that knowledge, all that expectation went out the window when things got real. From the very beginning of their calling, uh, Jesus had labored to teach his disciples about his imminent death at the hands of sinful men, what it meant for them, and how they should live in light of that. In essence, he was teaching them through word and deed what it means to follow him. And one of the chief lessons that can be summed up in this short phrase, as I go, so go you. In other words, if you were going to truly follow Jesus, they would suffer as he would suffer. If they would follow him, they will be hated just as he was hated. By following him, their life was bound up into his life. But just like I had learned educational theory inside a, a classroom and it was safe and, and all that within our, our, our little cohort, uh, as long as um, we weren't out there actually doing it, we could certainly uh, take notes and, and nod in agreement. But when the rubber hit the road, man, it's a totally different situation. And uh, for Jesus here, everything that he said about himself was becoming very real on the night that he was betrayed. After everything that they had learned and experienced being with the master himself, notice that their default reaction was to run and hide and betray. And at this point, faith had only been theory, and now the fires of experience would show their true heart condition. So as we approach the text this morning, we'll find that the examination is done, the, uh, the student teaching is over, and when you came to Christ, you graduated, and it's time to get into the real world where there are real dangers and real consequences for following Jesus. And the question is, is are you going to stay in the kitchen with the heat, or are you going to get out of the kitchen and go back into the world where you can cool off a little bit? Three things to help us stay put and flourish from this text. The first is, is that we need to examine our expectations. We need to examine our expectations. We live in an expectation-obsessed world, and it's ruining us. We expect so much from people, from technology, from systems to organizations and the like. Newly married couples um, and many seasoned couples, for, for, that, uh, for that matter, will often have problems that manifest themselves because of unrealistic expectations within that relationship. Think about it. What tends to happen when expectations don't meet reality? I mean, Let's take a simple example. Like, let's say you go to the grocery store, and uh, you're picking out produce, and you come to a perfectly good pear that doesn't seem to have any dents or any molding in it, but you look at it, and it just is shaped funny. Like, this is not a normal-looking pear. A lot of us will just say, nah, no thanks, we put it away, and then it just goes into the amount of wasted food that we have in our 
world. Uh, if you're at Quick Trip, like I often am, buying bananas, I would rather go home with nothing than bananas that are too green or have a little too much brown on them. Uh, I am picky when it comes to the kind of bananas that, uh, that I will pick out. Um, you know, we do the same in relationships, you know. Uh, maybe you might say, I expect this person to make me happy every single moment of every single day for the rest of my life. And that maybe happened for a year or two, but now maybe it seems like it's getting a little boring and you're finding that you want to go find something else, something maybe better. But if that is your expectation, guess what? You're going to live a miserable life. Because you're going to bounce from one person to another, expecting more and more, and they're not going to be able to deliver, and you're going to live in that sort of cycle. Now, why do you think it is that we set such high and unrealistic expectations? When it comes down to it, the only logical reason is, is that we think that we are entitled to the best. We think we're entitled. We deserve the best, and if anything fails to deliver to our standards, then we need to move on. And sadly, we seem to be moving in uh, culturally a directive that is so uh, narcissistic that the current ethos is that if this doesn't meet my expectations, uh, not only will I bail, but I must also punish the one who doesn't meet those expectations. This is exactly what we see in the person of Judas Iscariot. Honestly, we don't know much about his backstory. Really, the only thing that we know about him is that he was the treasurer of the disciples. He had the responsibility of keeping and guarding the money that the disciples had uh, in order to get by, as well as be generous to the poor. But yet, in John chapter 12, verse 5, it tells us that he was a thief. And not only was, uh, was that, he was described as one that would steal part of what was put in. Now, there's little evidence for us to believe that <clears throat> Judas weaseled his way into the group of the disciples in order to steal money. He probably came in with good intentions that ended up being corrupted in his own heart. But somewhere along the line, Judas stopped expecting Jesus to be a savior and started expecting him to be a source of revenue. Judas was the forerunner of the health and wealth gospel movement. As time uh, progressed, Judas became uh, more weary of the fact that Jesus might not be and do what he expected Jesus to be and, and to do. And finally, just a few nights before our text, if you remember from a few weeks ago, uh, there was a jar of perfume that was sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. They were in Bethany, and Jesus was being attended to by Mary, the sister of mother uh, of Martha, and the, and the sister of Lazarus. And in order to show her appreciation and affection for Jesus, she broke open an expensive jar of perfume, which actually amounted up to about a year's salary, and just dumped it on Jesus, which was a sign of affection. It was a sign of, of her love and care for him, especially in, in what was to come. And as Jesus relishes it as preparing for his burial, we know from other accounts that it was Judas that balked and said, we could have sold that for 300 denarii and given it to the poor. Well, of course, he didn't want to give it to the poor. He wanted to give it to himself. 
And so he criticized Jesus here. Jesus had become his breadwinner, and Judas realized that when um, he wouldn't be able to use Jesus as he had for so long, that the jig is up. And that very night, uh, back in chapter 14, verses 10 through 11, it tells us that Judas not only bailed on Jesus in spirit, but also sought retribution for not meeting those expectations. What was once a commitment to Jesus had become a scandal because Jesus was not what he had expected. With that background in mind now, we can come to verse 43. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now, notice how Mark sort of highlights this uh, or heightens the problem here. He not only names Judas, but he makes sure that we know that he was one of the twelve. He was one of Jesus's closest friends. Uh, we, we used to have this book at home uh, called Jesus and the Twelve Dudes Who Did. <laughs> and uh, it was a kid's book about the disciples. And Judas was one of these dudes that did. He was with Jesus in his inner circle for three years. And he shows up now with this gang of thugs from the religious and from the political world. Look in verse 44. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. Don't get weirded out by the kissing thing here. Um, this is a typical uh, greeting of affection in a lot of countries, even still today. You go to France today, and two, and two men will often kiss each other on the cheek as a way of affection. It would be anal uh, analogous to uh, a hug here. You see someone that you care about and appreciate, you haven't seen them for a while, you give them uh, an embraceable uh, hug, and that shows how disgusting this betrayal is. Imagine if one of your closest friends set you up to be framed and came with the Bureau of Criminal Apprehension and they said, I'm going to identify my friend by giving them a hug. What a sense of betrayal. And so here he calls him rabbi, which is, I mean, honored teacher. He's revered and respected, and yet he's doing the most disrespectful thing that he could do. He is framing him and sending him to death row because he's no longer appreciative of who Jesus actually is. So friends, we have to examine our expectations of Jesus or we will go the way of Judas. Many have come to Jesus with the expectation that he will make them uh, healthy and wealthy and free from problems. Many have come to Jesus thinking that everything in our lives will be easier and that happy days are here again and from here on out it's all smiles and giggles and nothing else is going to go wrong. Or perhaps some of us have come to Jesus with good intentions like Judas and have been sidetracked by the ambition uh, that Jesus might benefit us for some sort of personal gain. Some of us maybe want the label of, of good Christian in the community. We're behind closed doors. We are really children of the devil. You need to ask yourself, why am I in this? If 
there is anything other than the fact that you recognize your sinful nature and your hopelessness apart from Christ, crucified, died, and risen as your only hope, then when Jesus does not meet your expectations, you will flee just like Judas. You might, uh, not, you might greet him with a hug, but as you do, you put him on the path to the cross again, and you put yourself on the path to hell. Friends, we need to figure out what our expectations are. Second, we should reach for the right weapons. We should reach for the right weapons. What happens in verse 47, uh, on the surface, is exactly opposite of what happens here in verses 43 through 46. We see an unrealistic expectation uh, of, uh, that, of Jesus made Judas a coward. He, uh, he didn't like the real Jesus, and instead of dealing with it appropriately, he, he hides behind the government, and he hides behind relig- religious force. We still see that today. When people don't like who Jesus actually is, they will either run to the state, or uh, they, will, um, they will try to get the, the, the real Jesus out of the, the public discourse by threat of force, or they will run to a religion that will disregard the real Jesus and trade him for a a watered-down, feminized, made-up character and try to pass him off as the historical Jesus. Either way, it is a cowardly way of going about dealing with Jesus. On the other hand, verse 47 now appears to be the complete opposite reaction. Notice that Mark writes, one of those who stood by drew his sword struck the high priest's servant, and cut off his ear. So why in the world would Mark even put this detail in here? He gives no names, he just reports the facts, and he moves on. But why? I think, once again, Mark is trying to show us the importance of contrast here. Whereas Judas was cowardly, Uh, betraying Jesus and hiding behind a mob, this person here, who we know from uh, the Gospel of John, is actually Peter who cuts off this ear, takes up arms and tries to violently defend Jesus. And before we give him a high five for being the one that is, uh, um, you know, taking on this particular role, we need to realize that though Mark is uh, telling us that their actions are polar opposite, the condition of their heart is exactly the same. They are reacting to a fictional Jesus. Now, that might sound strange, but notice here that Judas expected that Jesus would be his ticket to ride. Jesus was going to get him his best life now, and when his expectation wasn't met, what did he do? Betrayed him and and sought retribution. Peter, throughout the gospel accounts, expects Jesus to be this kingly figure who is going to rise up and overthrow Rome so that Jesus can take his place on the throne and bring back independence. In Peter's mind, there is no way that Jesus' exaltation can come from suffering. If you remember back in chapter 8, verses 31 through 33, Jesus told the disciples that 
Suffering is the only way forward. There's no other way. And Peter had the gall to rebuke Jesus. He said, no, far be it from you, that's not going to happen. Remember Jesus? He said, get behind me, Satan. This is what is going to happen. And so now here in this passage, Jesus has ta- uh, I'm sorry, Peter has taken it upon himself to be the head of the secret service for, for Jesus here and defend him with violence. And just like Judas, Peter misunderstands Jesus and his mission. Jesus told them and us that the kingdom of God is at hand, but notice that he never once said that his kingdom comes by taking up arms. When Peter took up the sword, he was giving, the only, he was giving up the only effective weapons that Jesus has given us to wage kingdom warfare, which is the word and prayer. Now, notice what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that it is, uh, that it is, uh, that as a believer you shouldn't bear arms. There seems to be a good and a right place for defending the, uh, the innocent when the time comes. But what I am saying is that we are not to use force in order for the kingdom of God to advance. In 2,000 years, Jesus has done pretty well for himself without attacking or fighting violently, but rather through repentance and faith in the word and prayer. So our misunderstanding and expectations of Jesus will either make us a coward or make us overly zealous. It will make us a wimp or it will make us abusers, both of whom run to a false Jesus. So we need to reach for the right weapons, get in the word, pray like crazy, and then expect Jesus to be Jesus. And finally, we need to look to the one who doesn't run. Look to the one who doesn't run. So verses 52, uh, 50 through 52 are probably the most quickly fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. It was just at supper time. I mean, we're talking an hour or two before this, that Jesus said to his disciples back in verse 27 of chapter 14, when he said, all of you will fall away because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Peter told him, even if everyone falls away, I will not. (laughs) Well, truly, I tell you, Jesus said to him, today, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And then here's the punchline. They all said the same thing. When you are not in danger, it's really easy to talk about being a hero and what you would do in XYZ situation. But, well, I mean, the proof is in the pudding, they say. And when the band of thugs show up, the disciples show their true courage and they make like snagglepuss and exit stage left. Look in verse 50. Then they all deserted him and ran away. They all deserted him and ran away. Every one of them Of course, in in other accounts, 
They tell us that Jesus told the mob to let them go, which sort of echoes back to Moses in front of Pharaoh saying, let my people go. But here, Mark is showing the terror that they had and their desire to run. And this three years of Jesus telling them time and time again that if they want to follow him, there's a cost. But here's the thing. It is really easy to judge them while we are sitting in padded chairs in a nice, warm, posh room knowing that the Kennebec County Sheriff or the BCA is not going to be coming in anytime soon to break up our worship service and haul uh, me and Dave off and, and whatever. It's easy to judge when that's happening. It's easy to say, yeah, well, if I would have been there, I would have stood up for Jesus. Well, don't be so sure. Because we can sing, stand up, stand up for Jesus. But you might be singing a different tune when your employer comes to you and says, you need to, you need to sign this diversity statement document or we can't have you be an employee anymore. You can say all these things about, uh, about Jesus and be really vocal with your buddies here about the cultural chaos that we are facing as, as Christians. But when your daughter is forced to be in a locker room with a biological male who thinks that he is a female, are you going to cower and just think somebody else is going to say something and, and, and stand back in fear? It's easy to judge when your reputation, your livelihood is on the line. Don't be so sure that you would not be like the disciples here. In verses 51 and 52, Mark inserts this detail that that's, it's, it's really kind of strange. Um, it's not found in any other gospel account. Notice he says that a certain young man was wearing nothing but a linen cloth, was following him. They, being the mob, caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. What in the world is going on here? This is very strange. Who is this and why did he only have a linen cloth on? It's sort of a strange choice to wear for a Hebrew man. Uh, but here, most commentators believe that it is probably Mark interjecting a little bit of biographical information that this could possibly be Mark. I, I don't know why he would want to if you want to be remembered for anything, it's probably not just to wear a towel to the woods and run away naked from the mob. But it, it matters why this is here. It matters because of this event. Whoever this is, whether it's Mark or not, is probably only wearing this because they got word in the middle of the night that something was about to go down, grabbed whatever they could, went out to the, uh, the, the um, amount of olives to see what they could do and ended up getting caught up in the chaos and the confusion of everything that is happening here and left with nothing. It is a fulfillment of what Amos told us in Amos chapter 2 verse 16 when he said that even the most courageous of the warriors will flee away naked on that day. And this is important again because Mark wants us to see a contrast. The disciples are running away. This man is running away and his exposure shows the nakedness of the disciples' hearts. 
They, in their running, they are showing that their, their faith is naked and not clothed by Christ. This passage shows us exactly where you and I are in in our natural spiritual state, naked, afraid, and on the run. Now, notice the contrast. Who isn't running? It's Jesus. Who is the one that is standing there, doesn't even stand his ground or fight back? He was willing to go with his accusers to be prosecuted. Why? Because going to the cross is the only way to welcome back those who run. Going to the cross is the only way to welcome back those who cowardly hide behind a facade or who bully with false righteousness. When Jesus is beaten and crucified and killed, he is saying to all of us who are spiritually naked, stop running. Stop wearing yourself out. Come to me. It doesn't matter how far you've gone. I have run to the, the, the pits of hell and back for you. I will clothe you with my righteousness. I will take away your shame and your guilt if you just come to me. So because Jesus didn't run on that dark night, you and I no longer need to run. We can come to Jesus in freedom because he bore our shame, because he bore our grief. We no longer need to be spiritually naked. Because he went to the cross, he has taken away the most dreadful thing that we can face, the wrath of God, and taken our sin. Because he did that, you and I can boldly face whatever it is that life brings us head on, because Christ will be with us and in us. When our faith becomes real, we can face anything with confidence, because Jesus is with us through everything. Friends, when things get real, Jesus is there with us. Let's go to him.